Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thanks for queuing us up today. This is episode number 58 of The Next Track. A couple of months ago, when I saw that a book on progressive rock was about to release, I told Kirk, we have to get this guy, the author, on the show. Uh, David Weigel is one of my favorite political journalists, and a few years ago he veered off the path and wrote a short series of articles on progressive rock called Prague Spring, haha, at Slate.com. And they were really great, and ever since I've been waiting for the book, and the book is finally here, and Dave is here too. David Weigel, it's great to have you with us. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Dave Weigel is notably a political author at the Washington Post, and he's taken time off to write an extraordinary book called The Show That Never Ends, The Rise and Fall of Prague Rock. It, it's quite a departure from what you usually write about. Why did you go down this route to talk about a form of music that seems to be forgotten today? I, I honestly wanted to write this book before I was a political reporter. I, I started writing for public consumption when I was about 16. I loved music uh, at the time, I was buying cassette tapes, usually the, the cheapest ones uh, I could find <laughs> if, if I knew I liked the band uh, it, when I was a kid in Wilmington, Delaware. And in order to find more recommendations, I went online to the site markprindle.com, edited by, no surprise, Mark Prindle. So I would uh, get ideas for music to buy, discovered yes that way, really. Just he likes Metallica, I like Metallica, then he recommended yes. And from there, uh, I pitched a few reviews of actually not progressive bands, the holes I knew he had on the website that I could fill in for bands like Pearl Jam and stuff. So I, I always wanted to do this in college. I, I kind of had this in the back of my mind and I, I found as I, as I went through my files reporting this, I definitely had sketched out what it might look like as long ago as 2000. And I didn't really become a, pay, a paid political reporter until 2006. So it was a passion project in that sense. And not uncommon. I know reporters who cover politics and then on the side want to write about baseball because they were always aspiring baseball reporters or, or sports writers. Uh, and uh, the, in the time this was written, which was from 2013 to 2016, yes, it was about as good a time for presidential campaign journalism as you could want. But it also this also kind of kept me sane because I have – as much as I write, I have a, a level of tolerance for covering what has come to become of this country. And this kind of escapism was super helpful for keeping me mentally stable. That's a good point, because it is such a departure from, from your, your day job, as it were. I, I find it interesting that you're young enough that you weren't even born when these bands were playing, and you discovered them after the fact. Just before we started recording, I, my partner's daughter and her fiancé stopped by. They live a couple hours away, and they stopped by, and I said, listen, quick question for you. Do you know what progressive rock is? And she said, uh, and he said, oh, focus, hocus, pocus. Yeah. But he didn't even know any of the bands that we consider the, the staples of progressive rock. So it's like there's a whole lost generation that hasn't discovered the joys of this music. Yet somehow you fell into this at a certain time. How did you grow to like this when all this other music around you, the contemporary music, was so different? Yeah, I, I did find, as I explained what I was writing about, people who did not know what did and didn't fit in, into the genre. And I would always caveat that this is a pretty expansive genre. I mean, progressive rock isn't like punk where there's a, there's an aesthetic where you look at somebody with a mohawk and, and 
pins and strange tattoos and think, oh, okay, punk. Um, this was so popular that a lot of bands were, I think, sucked up in it, uh, that shared fan bases with other bands. And I just kind of kept defining it as music that grew out of rock, but brought in classical influences, Eastern influences, experimental music, just music that was recognizably in rock and roll, but, but ambitious. And so people would ask me, oh, is he uh, electric light orchestra? Uh, well, you know, they shared the fan base, but they were at heart a pop band. So I was giving more space to bands like Yes that were writing these 20 minute symphonies uh, with multiple parts and multi influences from literally across the planet uh, and that kind of music. So educating people one by one, as I described what I was writing about, was it was actually it was a little bit fun and then would always send me back to what I was writing to make sure I was being clear about it. I couldn't just be, be glib and assume people knew what this was. We were looking at a list of artists on uh, a Wikipedia article on prog rock, and it seems like there were several bands that just wanted to jump on the prog rock bandwagon without actually being progressive rock. Mm -hmm. I mean, they listed bands like Boston and Kansas, which you mentioned in the book. And as you say, like ELO, they sort of appropriated some elements, but... They're on the pop fringe of prog rock at best, wouldn't you say? Uh, they were marketed that way for a short period in the 70s, so I, I include them in the book for that reason. Uh, when this was a world-conquering genre of rock music, the, the aperture was widened, so a lot of bands came into it. And some of these bands would, would and did cite Yes and Genesis, etc. as influences. Uh, if, if you brought in instruments that were, big, that were more diverse than the usual combo of you know, guitar, bass, drums, and keyboard, then I at least gave you a look. But uh, th and that's key. That this, there was a point uh, from, I'd say, 1970 to 1976 where the record industry and uh, the radio industries were very interested in, in promoting progressive music. And, and this is also a reason why when the backlash came, it hit so hard. is because those are the same people marketing uh, new wave and marketing punk, who then just burned every <laughs> burned down everything they had been promoting before. It, it's almost as if if you were wearing Renaissance clothes and fronting a band playing French horn, you would have been a hugely marketable act at the time. <laughs> if you had, if you had good songs, and definitely, I mean, there <laughs> there always there always was something kind of forward facing rock. I mean, there are bands like like Griffin that are all that uh, started on their first album with all Renaissance <laughs> instruments, and that didn't last that long. There's Gentle Giant, same thing, they evolved into rock. But if you had a sound that was hard to categorize, then yeah, there, there was interest in, in what you were doing. So early in the book, you attempt to define progressive rock. You, you mentioned three features that this music had, retrospection, futurism, and experimentation. And it's kind of interesting because as I was reading the book, so I, I grew up in this period, I saw all these bands, Doug did as well. We're about the same age. I grew up in New York City. I saw Yes and ELP and Genesis and Renaissance and, and all these bands. And the one thing that I noticed as I read through the book was that if you compare the bands in the United States, the psychedelic bands, and the progressive bands in the UK, because most progressive rock really came from the UK originally, the American bands were mostly blues-based, yet the English bands had more of a folk and even in many cases a religious music background and classical music background. Uh, they did, and and also church music. One thing that came, yeah. that kept coming up in interviews was these bands whose members went to Anglican church and listened to the the hymns, like uh, 
Elger Elger song uh, songs and very baroque British compositions. Uh, they incorporated that into what they wrote as adults, and uh, but so the basis was different. I, I quote a few people like Lee Jackson from the Nice saying not not in a, in a way that can be misinterpreted, <laughs> not not in a pejorative way that they were not as influenced by by black American music. They were they were just pointing out that what, what was unique about what they were doing is that uh, unlike a lot of American bands, or unlike them starting out, you know, the, the, a lot of these bands are getting their breaks in London playing Motown covers at these all-night shows at the Marquee Club and stuff. And they, when they move on from there, they're doing something that is more recognizably English and more recognizably theirs with a ton of experimentation. So they just that, that's a difference, I think, between this and what is growing up uh, a little bit later, but an overlapping time period in America with, with the Grateful Dead and with more kind of spacey jam rock and also the difference between them and jazz fusion. And this remains a, pr- a pretty white form of music. I, I'm pointing to my Grateful Dead t-shirt. I almost always wear Grateful Dead t-shirts. I've been a deadhead um, since the mid seventies. And it's interesting as I became a deadhead, I became less interested in progressive rock because the two kind of only slightly overlap on that Venn diagram. We'll, we'll get to the end of progressive rock, rock later, but what would you say was the first progressive rock album ever? The first one that was marketed as progressive rock, and really everyone agrees, kickstarted it was In the Court of the Crimson King by King Crimson. There's stuff before that that uses orchestration and is super experimental, but that one, even just the, the record notices the advertising, pitch it as if you liked what the you know what the Who was doing with its rock operas that are it's still basically the, just the, the band members writing pop songs, but along a theme, then you're, you're going to love this. And uh, the, the first one to really expand songs across the whole album sides, that's, that's yes, close to the edge. They all are, these, these are the ones that are sort of cited by uh, next wave bands, the, a, lot, a lot of them from the rest of Europe. Uh, but it's not just the length of the songs that do it. It's, I, I, thought, I kept going back to how critics were framing this and the level of ambition in how it was it was played and, and marketed. Uh, and that's why I, I, I'm pretty comfortable starting with King Crimson. It's interesting, because as I was reading your book, I just never really thought of King Crimson as a progressive rock band, because the difference between In the Court of the Crimson King and then something like Lizard or Red, they're so different that they just didn't fit for me in that mold of Yes, ELP and Genesis. Yeah, and they don't always love being called progressive rock either. Robert yeah. Fripp is one of the more particular people uh, who ma- who made it into into the book, and I, there's a lot of him in there in part because everyone who worked with him has stories because he is so arch and so specific about what he thinks is interesting in music. He is not. He did not like being part of a, a, a genre. Uh, there are few few musicians who do, but he especially wanted to kind of blow up and start again every time he did something that, he, that even if it succeeded, he got pretty bored quickly with how it sounded. And when yeah. he's reconstituted the band like he like he is now, uh, it is a lineup with three drummers and new, new and new members of the band, people he had hadn't played with in decades. He, he wants it to sound, uh, the way he put it once, fresh whenever it was written. And yeah, not everyone in the book is happy with the label. Certainly not Prague. Some of them really despise just that being applied to their music. And like I said before, it never became an identifier except for, you know, I, I think if you do see a music fan wearing a cape with stars on it, that you assume that they're, <laughs> then they're a Rick Wakeman fan. And 
the odd thing is these these musicians, as I think of across the book, are uh, in in their approach to music and in the this period's the great greatest creativity. They're pretty similar to the punks. They're in their early twenties. They're making music that sounds interesting to them. Uh, they don't re- really love the trappings of the of the genre. One thing that's interesting. So, in the Court of the Crimson King was 1969. Close to the Edge was 1972. Uh, w- part of what made progressive rock take off was the breakthrough of these British bands into arenas in the U.S. There was a, a documentary on the BBC, I think, last year. It was talking about the second British invasion, which started, you know, around 72, when all of a sudden there was such a demand for this music that they had to move into these larger venues. Instead of playing at the Fillmore or at Winterland, they were going to Madison Square Garden and places like that. Is that one of the main reasons that got progressive rock to be such a big monolithic beast that was rolling over the rest of the music? It was generally popular. I mean, I like that point because that's one thing I want to rescue in the book. And look, there there are times that something incredibly popular is not terribly good. I'm very aware of that. Even in my lifetime, I remember, I don't think I will ever write the book about how Limp Biscuit were more important than the New Pornographers or something because Limp Biscuit sold more albums. <laughs> uh, I do think that in the 1970s, the cultures that developed around these bands and around these, these giant concerts and festivals uh, were real and they were kind of unrepeatable because they were they were such a com- community of uh, DJs and of fans and then there were there were also fewer distractions I just think right now uh, it's really starting in the 80s and then continuing probably for the rest of the rest of our lives uh, there is so much to amuse you that does not require going to a large concert. There is there are ways to capture music that are easier than taking an album home and listening to to it on the speakers. It's kind of portable. Uh, there are there are video games now if you want if you want to spend your time. And uh, and what kept coming up was the rock concert culture and the album culture could be such a bigger part of your lives during the period when this music is is its most successful. Yeah, and as I said earlier, I grew up in New York and we would just go to concerts all the time, whether they were big concerts at Madison Square Garden, smaller shows at the Palladium, or that music festival in Central Park. I forget what they called it. It was at Woolman Rink, the skating rink in the summer. And the venue held about had about 3,000 seats, but there were these big rocks behind it on one side, sort of on a an angle to the stage, and hundreds of people would get up there for a lot of the shows where you either couldn't buy tickets or, or didn't want to spend for tickets. And we'd go to shows and listen to bands that, you know, every kind of band from, from I don't know, from Peter Gabriel to Muddy Waters to Arlo Guthrie. It was a very Catholic period in music that, that music fans weren't really focused on such a limited, on just one genre. Yeah, but you've also got record labels who are so willing to record anything and throw it out there to see what sticks. Yeah. I mean, that, that so many of these bands were recorded at all is kind of unusual. It would never happen nowadays. And you've got these labels coming out of nowhere getting the big-time distribution deals. Uh, completely. And I spent a lot of time with uh, Virgin and Harvest and Decca and these labels that just, they saw a real market in that progressive sound. I quote some of their A&R memos where they say, you know, by the mid 70s we see progressive rock being this 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 much of the marketplace uh but it was it was part of i like the way you put it as catholic i mean it's part of this whole 
package of of music that is filling this gigantic space in in the culture of the time. It was the progressive was the stuff that they knew was uh, the, the bands artistically had the had a unique approach and that it could fill it could fill stadiums. A lot of it, not all of it. I mean, there there's I spent some time on on Soft Machine who who are more jazzy and I think a, a bit more experimental i spent some time on some of these european groups and some of the some of the ones that use renaissance instrumentation but at the same time you've got gentle giant opening for black sabbath sort of being <laughs> baffling the crowd being baffled by the crowd but the the attitude the of, of, of the of the able, the labels was well of course everyone's going to get along uh every, this is this is complimentary this band using Renaissance vocal harmonies plus Black Sabbath. That's going to make sense. And it wasn't insane. I mean, you have uh, on Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, you, you do have uh, synthesizer patterns that are part and parcel of this period of progressive rock. And around that time, you had Miles Davis opening for the Grateful Dead in Winterland. So these kinds of juxtapositions weren't that uncommon. I think another interesting thing was also the rise of FM radio, which was more willing to play longer tracks and even full album sides. And I know WNEW New York did that a lot. How much do you think that this led to, and the FM radio in the States, as well as pirate radio in the UK, how much do you think this led to bands recording longer musical compositions, full sides, full albums? Because that that's one of the defining elements of progressive rock. Not every band did that, but a lot of them did. They're they're famous for their full side tracks. They're they're definitely related. I think that the knowledge that the lengthy song could be played in its entirety and then the audience was there to listen to it, uh, that broke people away from thinking they had to boil the song down to three minutes. And even a song like Roundabout, uh, there 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 were versions shrunk down to radio, but you knew you could have a you could have this eight-minute song be played its entirety on the album radio, and it would fill the album. And then that—that's kind of been lost. I mean, music video culture eventually, much much later, recaptures some of that with these these long films based around it, and then and the confidence the audience is going to go into it. Uh, but that didn't really change the music; that just changed the packaging. Whereas the being aware that there would be a audience and a I guess, conveyance for whatever you wrote, no matter how ambitious, that allowed people to, to do more and to experiment more. You know, we do have these landmarks of Close to the Edge and Supper's Ready and things like that. And then you read Ian Anderson's comments about Thick as a Brick being a spoof concept album. I find that kind of surprising because a lot of progressive rock stands out for really complex musical ideas. And I think the first side of Thick as a Brick has some of the most complex musical ideas and transitions and thematic developments of any of those albums of the time. The lyrics may have been a spoof, but I think he's just pulling people's legs, calling the whole album a spoof. I, I, he was aware of... Uh, what he could get over on critics and uh, what, what he could because I talked to him about a passion play, which is the other two sides, one song album that did not go over the same way. And he was very aware. But uh, no, there there is a archness about some of this music that uh, I think isn't fully appreciated. Not everyone took it super seriously, even as they, they were writing it. Uh, Frank Zappa, is, who is a figure on, he, he appears a couple times in the book. He is a figure in progressive music, not a figure in progressive rock uh, at all. But that attitude that you could do interesting things and also joke around and be self-aware about it, it was pretty widely shared. Uh, Rick Wakeman with Yes uh, knows how he would, even when he breaks away from the band because he feels they've gotten too Logie and pretentious, 
he's making he's making these uh, albums to be performed on ice, <laughs> but with, about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. I mean, there's a sense of I think in in the British context of a pantomime that you could take something take something uh, and have real fun and make real art with it, but also be, also be a little bit silly. And uh, ELP is as, as self-important as the music could sound too. For every for every Tarkus, there's a Jeremy Bender. There's them just writing kind of a beer hall song. Benny the Bouncer. We were discussing that before the we, before the recording. Like, it's almost like somebody said, "We need two more minutes. Somebody do something." <laughs> it, it's weird because that's ELP's signature album, Brain Salad Surgery, and it's got Benny the Bouncer. And it's got Jerusalem and. You know, Jerusalem is very interesting because, as you were saying earlier, they have this church influence. But Benny the Bouncer, that's just a mistake. No, I mean, they were just dudes in their 20s with senses of humor and uh, who, who could goof around. <laughs> like, one, if you have a ton of of talent and drive, you can also have fun with it. And a lot of them did. And I, I, I think that that gets a little bit lost when this uh, this music sort of locked in amber as guys with capes writing 20 minute songs. I'm sure some. <laughs> That was part of it. There's not another genre that can claim that. But it, when you're when you're an incredibly talented musician, it doesn't take away your sense of humor, uh, and yeah. doesn't certainly doesn't take away the audiences. Uh, another thing about these bands is that they put on some really good shows. I just loved some of the concerts that I saw. I mean, okay, Keith Emerson. It turned into a cliche when he was like lying down with the organ above him. And I never saw the thing where he was actually spinning around in the air with the organ. But, you know, he jams the knives in between the keys and stuff. And early Genesis with Peter Gabriel was very theatrical. I saw Yes in 1978 at Madison Square Garden when they played in the round. And that was really a, a very big departure for the time. So the shows were enjoyable. They were fun. You got your money's worth when you went to see them. Yeah. And that's one thing I think that it attracted me as somebody who missed the the golden age and was born in the eighties came to this really in the nineties. Uh, when I started to go to show, rock shows, bands I liked a lot, bands I still like, uh, they basically look like five guys in t-shirts playing through their songs, maybe walking out for an encore, nothing, nothing that you feel like you're getting visually. Uh, I mean, I remember seeing flaming lips in I think 1999 or 2000 and really appreciating that they would put the thought into this, uh, visual show into the light show. They, they keep, Flaming Lips, uh, who are hard to classify, but not progressive per se, uh, just goofed around within the music in a way that I found attractive. And and I looked back and said, well, there was a period when that was fairly expected. If if a band reached this level of progressive act, they knew they were what what they were doing. And some of that was and some of that had to be conveyed on the stage as an enormous light show, as a quadrophon- quadraphonic sound performance, as rotating to see each member of the band. And being pretentious is not all bad because sometimes you want to let people see as much of you as possible. Yeah, um, I remember in particular, this was one of the weirdest shows. It was Tangerine Dream, technically not progressive rock, but close, playing at Avery Fisher Hall in Lincoln Center in New York with a Lazarium light show behind them. And it just it just made sense at the time. This is probably in 1976 that the, there's a live album that they made with four tracks on four sides. And one of them was recorded in that show. I think it was 76. But there were these spectacular shows and, and the concerts were that they were a big deal. Um, you know, we would go and see these concerts and we'd talk about them for a long time. But then sort of 1978, all of a sudden, it just started dying, and, and it died so fast. It The downfall was so sudden. I almost attribute it to 
And I don't know if it was 78 or 79 when Yes recorded that Don't Save the Don't Kill the Whale song, that that was the, the sort of Emperor's New Clothes moment when everyone realized this that, was... <laughs> that gets my vote as the last prog rock album. <laughs> but how did this happen so suddenly? Well, a couple of just band burnout did it. It's just how long should a genre last, really? I mean, what's the, the longest a genre has... I think throw the earth as a colossus, uh, not much longer than progressive rock did, which is basically from 70 to 70, 77. Uh, and then a really dis- discreet and concerted choice by critics and labels and radio to switch, to switch around. Now there was still a lot of rock radio playing this, but one thing that was really striking reading all of the magazines I did for the research, and I read uh, not cover to cover, but I, I, Every time I saw something in a British magazine or American music magazine from the 1966 to the 80s that was relevant, I, I, I flipped through all of them. And I noticed there really was a turn uh, at the end of 1976-1977. You see uh, British reporters going to the United States to scout out the new bands they're seeing that are exciting like the Ramones. And you see when they when they are coming back to interview progressive bands, even Rush, they're, they're just cynical in a way they were not before. Uh, sounds even design, redesigns the magazines instead of looking like this sort of spangly space age magazine. They, it looks like the logo has been made out of graffiti. And th- this this choice to basically put on a new hat uh, is made by a lot of people at the same time, from the labels to the critics. Those as the fans don't go along immediately. I mean, I, I noticed that even the end of year album polls, like who's the best keyboard player, who's the best guitarist. In these rock magazines, even as the magazines are making fun of yes, the the fans are saying no, no, those are those are still our favorites. But it's pretty untenable. And uh, kind of luckily for some of these bands, uh, like like Genesis, they're sort of tired of writing the extremely ambitious music too. They, they start going in more of a pop form. So some of them endure that way. Uh, you have Robert Fripp kind of tuning out for a few years, coming back in as a much more punk influenced experimental artist. But yeah, it's all those things. I was just surprised at how much power the critics had. I guess because as a as a journalist covering politics, we're very aware of how how much power we often don't. <laughs> we everyone loved it, loved to at least pretend they hate us and do the opposite of what we're writing and what we say. I don't think the critics had power. I mean, I lived through this, and all of a sudden, a time came when we just said this isn't cool anymore. And we started hearing the clash and talking heads. And, and then a couple years later, we started getting stuff from Factory Records. And we didn't look back. And Doug and I were chatting before the, before the show. It's only about 10, 15 years ago that I started listening to this stuff again. I mean, I went through a period when I, I didn't totally forget about it, but it just wasn't on my playlist. Yeah, but I, I think that's all in the ether. I mean, the, it's not like record companies put out an order and said, okay, you're done with this. But all those factors were colliding. I mean, these these bands are band members are hitting their thirties. They're writing less interesting stuff, uh, and it's how many times can you possibly go to these? As, as fun as they are, they are these all enveloping shows. I I, th- I think the, the change in taste is pretty natural. But that's kind of what I want to do with the book was uh, get into what was happening right before the turn because it's actually pretty well covered in pop music history. The rise of punk. The uh, the rise of uh, even post-punk of things that deconstructed rock. The uh, the assumption in all those histories is that it, it needed to be deconstructed because it was terrible. They they saved every they saved everyone from bad music, and so that part of it is pretty well told. I get a little, a little bit in the book, but 
I, it's, it's never been as simple <laughs> as, as just there was dinosaur rock and then, and then came punk, uh, especially because some of these punk bands, even if they didn't want to admit it to critics that they were influenced by it. I, I mean, the thing I, I rediscovered while I was listening to this and just kind of trying to clear my head for after a long period of writing was I went back and listened to the, the, the one germs album GI and I, I listened to no God and it's very clear in the beginning of that song, Pat Smear is, is basically ripping off the opening of roundabout. <laughs> he's just, he's just quoting that in a extremely like lifestyle based minimalist uh, punk band from, from LA is still cheekily saying, oh, yeah, of course you listen to Yes. <laughs> of course that's part of it. That's a kind of wink toward the past, I guess. They, they, they want that the relationship existed, I think. Yeah. So I would say the last concert that I ever saw that could be called progressive rock and arguably might not have been was when Pink Floyd did The Wall in 1980. I would say Pink Floyd started as a progressive rock band and then morphed into something different. And The Wall obviously was such a concept and such a, an opera in many ways. It, it goes beyond that. Um, but that was kind of, by then it was pretty much over, wasn't it, 1980? Uh, it pretty much is. When the, some of the progressive bands come back in the, in the 1981, 82, uh, they are either just they sound completely different, like King Crimson, or they are openly corporate rock. I mean, one thing I had fun reporting out was just the willingness with, with uh, John Wetton it, 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 when it comes to Asia or Chris Squire, when it comes to yes, the willingness which they're able to say, oh, you know, the label came in, they won uh, something more marketable, and they combined some stuff that 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 they could not, they know how to sell with some artists they knew how to sell, and voila, we made we made gigantic pop hits. Uh, so yeah, the turn was embraced by these people. The the, the surprising thing it comes when Marillion rise up uh, in the early '80s and. the 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 fan base I think that had been um, very intense about progressive rock and then is intense about Marillion I think as a as a stopgap some of them were were listening to to heavy metal and going to other shows like that so the, you can see the, Brit, the the press is not quite sure what to make of people so quickly <laughs> rediscovering a band with complicated songs and a lead singer who wears face paint and and costumes uh, but the the bands that had been there at the genesis in the in the 60s become pop and they go back to playing progressive music a little bit later, but they, they're pretty open that they adapt because this was what, um, what was saleable for a couple, for a number of years. I really wish we had more time, but we do have to stop it here. David Weigel is the author of the show that never ends the rise and fall of prog rock. It's a good read, a breezy read, very well researched, and it tells a really good story. It's really enjoyable. A really good rock book. Thanks so much for taking time to talk to us. Oh, I appreciate you calling me. Thank you. I don't think there'll be any question as to what kind of music we'll be picking for our next tracks. Kirk? Well, after this conversation, I think my next track has to be one of those great progressive rock albums from the 1970s that I wore out when I was a teenager. And I think of all of the ones that stick with me, the one that stands out the most is Yes is Close to the Edge. At 18 minutes and 39 seconds, this is one of the longer songs. It goes along with Thick as a Brick and Genesis' Supper's Ready, but Close to the Edge has a musicality that I have always appreciated. And the album itself has three songs, Close to the Edge and You and I and Siberian Cat True, which is a nice combination of tracks. They, they all have different tones, but the, the song itself, Close to the Edge, it's, it's musical, it's got crescendos, it's got development of themes, and it, it does have a classical sound in many ways, 
this really is something when I go out for a walk, this is one of the songs that I'm likely to want to put on. It's not really the right number of beats per minute for walking, but it does have that musical flow and that musical impetus from the beginning to the end. So I think I'm going to put that on when we're finished, listen to that whole album a few times. The CD release of it, the original LP just had those three tracks, and the CD release came with a couple of extra tracks, including the single version of Simon and Garfunkel's America, which I've always liked. It's not a progressive rock song, but I've always liked the way Yes does it. And then they've got these alternate versions and studio run-throughs, which are a waste of time. So I never listened to the extras on the CD. But just that one song, Close to the Edge, is just the one for me that is probably the most emblematic of that time. What about you, Doug? What's your favorite progressive rock album? Well, the album I'll be listening to is not the best representation of their uh, formative progressive rock stuff, but Family is the name of the band, and the album is called Bandstand. A bit late career for them. They were around from 66 to 73. They had uh, varying personnel, but there was a core duo of guitarists John Charlie Whitney and vocalist Roger Chapman. It was said of Chapman, and I forget who said it, that his voice could fell small woodland creatures at 50 paces. Yes, the guy can pack a wallop. Uh, they borrowed from jazz, from classical, folk, rock. The band had several multi-instrumentalists, too, and they were able to produce incredibly diverse songs. In fact, no two songs are similar enough to classify them other than as prog rock. Uh, this particular album, Bandstand, it's their next-to-last album from 1972, and it's, it's very accessible. And if you like it, like I did, it's really easy to get into their earlier stuff. Interestingly at least to prog rock people. This is a band that bass player John Wetton was in for a time. It seems that John Wetton was in every prog rock band for a time. And more interestingly, Family is the band that he joined after declining Robert Fripp's first invitation to join King Crimson. Anyway, tough to characterize the music of Family, but if, if you're prog rock curious, this album is pretty accessible. Bandstand by the band Family is my next track. This has been The Next Track a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>